When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Muse, sing of Artemis, sister of the far shooter, 
the virgin who delights in arrows, who was fostered with Apollo. She waters her horses from meles deep in reeds, and swiftly drives her all-golden chariot through Smyrna to vine-clad Claros, where Apollo, god of the silver bow, sits waiting for the far-shooting goddess who delights in arrows. And so hail to you, Artemis, in my song, and to all goddesses as well. Of you first I sing, and with you I begin. Now that I have begun with you, I will turn to another song. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv, she who loves a fucking angry and sometimes righteous goddess. Today, I bring you an episode in honor of the very earliest days of the podcast. Some notions that I covered oh so briefly or glossed over or missed entirely. This begins a month's worth of episodes bringing us back to my roots. Angry goddesses, problematic heroes, you know the good stuff. I was meant to begin a new series on stories of Heracles that I haven't told you yet on the podcast, but I'm waiting for the delivery of a new book, an enormous and far too expensive book dedicated entirely to that hero-turned-god, so we will begin with him next week, I hope. There's so much to Heracles that I haven't yet shared, I'm so looking forward to it, but I need that book. It cost way too much for me to leave it behind. Due to that delay, I had to kind of scramble for today's episode, but then it occurred to me. There are stories of the goddess of the hunt, and her sometimes righteous, often not, anger, her punishment of men who wronged her and others who did some other things, stories that I haven't yet told on the podcast. Artemis deserves better, and I'm here to give it to her. Today, I'm going to tell you all about this goddess of the hunt, the badassery that is Artemis, and all the men, gods, and sometimes women she punished for incurring her wrath. This is episode 154, Sing, Goddess of the Wrath of the Goddess of the Hunt, Artemis, Who Loves to Fuck Shit Up. Artemis, Diana, goddess of the hunt, of the protection of young girls, of so-called virginity. What Artemis really was was a goddess of freedom for women. Freedom of choice, of a desire not to be married and let that dictate your entire life. Artemis is called a virgin goddess, the virgin goddess really, but that doesn't mean what we think it means today. Ultimately, it means she wasn't married. Not necessarily that she'd never had sex with men or women or whoever. She was just unmarried. That applies to Artemis, Athena, Hestia too. We call them virgins, maidens. But it isn't about their sexuality in the way that it seems now. It was about their status. 
They didn't marry, and oh, all the respect in the world to them for that. The passage I read at the top of the episode was one of the Homeric hymns to Artemis, she who delights in arrows. Homer called her Artemis Aeokiera, she who showers down arrows. Now, what isn't necessarily implicit in Artemis's status as an unmarried, quote-unquote, virgin goddess is her sexuality. I've mentioned this before, even had guests on the show to talk about it, but my stance on Artemis's sexuality, whether she was straight, gay, somewhere in between, is that she is what you want or need her to be. Do you want to see Artemis as a lesbian icon for you to love? Do it. That's valid. Do you want to see her as a bicon? Also valid. Asexual, aromantic. Yep, still valid. What's so interesting about Artemis and the stories and anecdotes that we have about her is that you can kind of form whatever opinions you want based on those stories. There's everything and nothing when it comes to discussion of her sexuality and her romantic status. I don't think the ancient Greeks were particularly concerned with her specifically in that way, but with a lot of the gods too, that applies. Of course, as always, they also didn't have our modern understanding of sexuality and fluidity and gender. It was a different world. Which, in part, is why it's so easy to see in her what you want or need. Artemis is whoever and whatever you want her to be. That is to say, today's episode isn't about me assigning a sexuality to her, it's just about the things she did good and bad. And when I say virgin, I mean quite specifically unmarried. As a virgin goddess, what stands out about Artemis most is not some defining sexuality or active role in major stories of the gods, but simply the lengths she was willing to go to to defend herself and those she loved for good or bad, particularly when one's brother is Apollo. When it comes to her most famous story, that of Acteon, which I told so early on the podcast, ostensibly she was defending her purity, her virginity. But what she was really defending was, quite simply, her bodily autonomy. She was defending herself against what she saw as a threat, an impending assault. She was a survivor. Whether she was a virgin or not is irrelevant, as is virginity generally. She is most famous for this, for defending herself against Acteon specifically, but generally she's famous for defending her body. But in fact, there are far more examples of her defending and punishing for entirely unrelated reasons. Everyone. <laughs> but hey, I wonder why this so-called virgin goddess is famous mostly for defending her so-called virginity and not literally every other thing she did in the ancient myths. What reason could there possibly be for that? Do I need to say it's the patriarchy, or do you guys get me by now? But before we get too deep into the wrath of it all, the punishments of Artemis that have absolutely nothing to do with her status as an unmarried goddess, let's look at Artemis as a woman, a goddess, an Olympian. You'll remember that she was the daughter of Zeus and the Titan goddess Leto, bright and shining daughter of the Titan Phoebe. Leto and Zeus, it seems, might have actually been 
in love or whatever that means for Zeus, or at the very least, they were together consensually. But once Leto became pregnant with these children, Hera took it upon herself to make Leto's life far, far too difficult. I won't rehash it entirely. The myth of how Leto came to give birth to Artemis and Apollo is one I told so long ago. But safe to say, it really cemented Leto as a strong and powerful goddess, resilient, just like the daughter she gave birth to. Apollo, meanwhile, is a little shit, but today isn't about him. A late source in the world of Greek mythology, Callimachus, tells us of the moment when Artemis ensured that she would remain unmarried forever. As a child, she sat on her father's knee, Zeus, acting in one of his rare, barely existent moments of traditional fatherhood, and she tells him that she doesn't ever want to marry, and she asks for his help in ensuring that. Of course, most translations and understanding of this have her asking to hold on to her maidenhood, but the ultimate point remains the same. Artemis wishes to remain unmarried, and she holds enough sway with her father, the king of the gods, to ensure that she has his approval to remain that way. Her brother Apollo may get to play the role of most important child of Zeus, sometimes tied with Athena, but Artemis shows her importance and her power in other ways, particularly getting to be and stay who she wants to be. Which, I mean, don't get me wrong, isn't always such a great and kind, warm goddess, but she represents something that's important. Ancient Greek women had a role model when it came to what womanhood could look like. Sure, you could marry and be happy, or you could marry and not be particularly happy at all, but you could also look to Artemis, the goddess of the wild, of the hunt, and see that she had vowed never to marry, and you could see in her some inspiration. Because in that hymn of Callimachus, she doesn't only ask to remain unmarried. No, she wants more than just that when it comes to her future. She also asks Zeus, quote, Give me arrows and a bow. Stay, father, I ask you not for quiver or for mighty bow. For me, the cyclops will straightway fashion arrows and fashion for me a well-bent bow. But give me to be Phasphoria, bringer of light, and give me to gird me in a tunic with embroidered border, reaching to the knee, that I may slay wild beasts. Artemis was born the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of the wild and wild animals. She got to be who she wants. She got to wear what she wanted, a nice short tunic so she could run around. She was the protectress of girls, a goddess of childbirth, one of many. She protected every moment of a girl or woman's life before she got married. Every moment of that time, she was under the protection of Artemis. That, again, is what they mean by virgin, unmarried, and thus she protected the other unmarried girls and women. Not only that, though, Artemis also represented, or rather was believed to have caused, sudden death in girls and women. There's many times when Homer references these instances and puts the blame upon Artemis. 
Odysseus's mother, Anticlea, was struck down by Artemis, we hear, when he meets her in the underworld. She died suddenly. Achilles wishes that Briseis had been struck down by the goddess before the whole mess had had a chance to take place. Ah, yes, Achilles. It's the enslaved woman's fault. Not anyone else's, surely. Others mention her as the goddess in charge of this, this sudden death. The goddess who seems to cause them. It's a fascinating juxtaposition, similar to her brothers, where they are both in charge of protection and death. Unavoidable and tragic, sudden deaths because there can't be one without the other. In exactly the same vein as her role as both protectress of girls and the cause of their sudden deaths, Artemis is equally at odds in the stories we have featuring her. She is either a savior of herself or others from the machinations of men wishing to harm them, or she is the punisher on behalf of men. Too often she takes vengeance for her brother Apollo, killing those who he feels have wronged him. I've already told you the story of Artemis and Actaeon so long ago on the podcast, but it's the most famous instance of this. Actaeon, out hunting with friends in the forests of Boeotia, comes upon Artemis and her nymphs bathing in a pond. Whether he intentionally spies or it's accidental doesn't really matter for the story, though the two variations do say something about the varied Actaeon. Either way, Artemis catches him, and she punishes him by transforming him into a stag, where he is then hunted by his own friends and torn apart by his own hunting dogs. Violent, yes. Horrifying, definitely yes. In this case, though, we can see where Artemis came from. Should a bit of spying, accidental or otherwise, result in one of the most gruesome deaths of Greek myth? No. But then, these are gods and goddesses, so we expect a bit of excess. Still, the point is that something happened to her and the women around her that caused her anger, her wrath, and her vengeance. If disturbing, it's still one of the most righteous instances of Artemis's wrath. One of the other more famous examples that I've told before is her punishment of Niobe. Niobe insults Leto, Artemis and Apollo's mother, and as a result, Apollo and Artemis shoot down every one of Niobe's many, many children. Others include, in a manner only expected from the Olympian gods, an excessive number of instances where she punishes people for not worshipping her or not worshipping her correctly. If you think there's a single Olympian god who is above punishing humans for forgetting them, you'd be wrong. No one is too good for a bit of divine retribution. In the case of Artemis, one of those punishments included sending the famed Caledonian boar to Caledon, where it would be eventually hunted and killed by Atalanta and her boys. Or another case that is just plain fun, in a kind of truly disturbing way, seems to be almost exclusively told in Pseudo-Apollodorus's Library of Greek Mythology, where he says simply, quote, 
While making his matrimonial sacrifices, Admetos forgot to include Artemis. Consequently, when he opened the door to the bridal chamber, he found it full of the coils of serpents. Apollo told him how to propitiate to the goddess. <laughs> Too many snakes, if you ask me. In some of Artemis's more troubling moments of punishment, horrifying even, we have people like poor Coronis, whose story I've told in an episode on Asclepius, the god of medicine. Coronis was a mortal woman beloved by Apollo, in whatever way Apollo loves. In this case, I'm not convinced it was anything real at all. Still, he said he loved her, and that's the key. He said he loved Coronis, and they were together. She became pregnant, but eventually we're told she slept with somebody else. Apollo found out, and he asked his sister, Artemis, to do his dirty work. She killed Coronis with her arrows, and Apollo rescued their son, Asclepius, from the woman's body. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I sing of Artemis, whose shafts are of gold, who cheers on the hounds, the pure maiden, shooter of stags, who delights in archery, own sister to Apollo with a golden sword. Over the shadowy hills and windy peaks she draws her golden bow, rejoicing in the chase, and sends out grievous shafts. The tops of the high mountains tremble and the tangled wood echoes awesomely with the outcry of beasts. Earthquakes and the sea also wear fish's shoal, but the goddess with a bold heart turns every way, destroying the race of wild beasts. And when she is satisfied and has cheered her heart, this huntress who delights in arrows slackens her supple bow and goes to the great house of her dear brother, Phoebus Apollo, to the rich land of Delphi, there to order the lovely dance of the muses and graces. There she hangs up her curved bow and her arrows, and heads and leads the dances, gracefully arrayed, while all they utter their heavenly voice, singing how neat-ankled Leto bear children supreme among the immortals, both in thought and in deed. Hail to you, children of Zeus and rich-haired Leto, and now I will remember you and another song also. Ah, the Homeric hymns. Those two Artemis are too short for their whole episodes, so you just know I'm going to read them here. That was the other Homeric hymn to Artemis. There are so many brief anecdotes of Artemis punishing people around the Greek world for neglecting to properly worship her. Like I said, this isn't unique to her and is absolutely something that existed for all the Greek gods. Often, these are anecdotes written by historians or travel writers, ancient Greeks who traveled the Greek world, speaking to locals and learning new things. If something bad happened to someone, they likely had a god to blame, or rather, a story of a god's punishment that really just helped them understand whatever had happened to them. It's kind of nice if you think about it. They wanted to understand some tragedy, an injury or illness or a sudden death in someone they loved. And rather than have to wrap their heads around the horror that is life and random accidents and death, they were able to attribute it to a god that they must have angered in some way. Pausanias tells of a story of Patri in Achaea. There, there were two lovers, Melanippos and Comytho. Comytho was a priestess of Artemis, but she fell in love with Melanippos. Their love was obviously forbidden simply by the fact that Comytho was a priestess of Artemis, but also because the families seemed to have disagreed. 
Still, these two were in love, and if Shakespeare has taught us anything, you can't stop two young people in love. Or lust. The two lay together, they had sex, against the wishes of their families and the societal practices around them, and they did it in the Temple of Artemis, no less. And so, well, Artemis sent the town a plague. A horrible plague that affected their crops and the people and everything the city had. The people of the town sought advice from the oracle, looking for some solution to the plague that was, well, plaguing them. They were told that the couple, Melanippos and Comaitho, must be sacrificed. That is what Artemis wished for. A rare instance of human sacrifice. But one similar to the other famous human sacrifice that is also linked to Artemis. But we'll get there. The oracle said that not only would the people of Petrae need to sacrifice the couple, but that every year they would need to sacrifice the fairest of their young people, a man and a woman. This, Pausanias explains, is the cause for naming one of the rivers in Patrai, which previously had no name. And quote, The innocent youths and the maidens who perished because of Melanippos and Comaitho suffered a piteous fate, as did their relatives, but the pair, I hold, were exempt from suffering, for the one thing that is worth a man's life is to be successful in love. Kind of nice? I mean, romantic and horrible? But this, of course, leads us to the most famous sacrifice in the name of Artemis. A young woman story that I told you very recently, Iphigenia. I covered Iphigenia's story as it appears in Euripides' play, Iphigenia at Aulis, but of course this myth in particular appears in far, far more sources than just Euripides' play. It, like this story in Pausanias, is one of the very, very few human sacrifice stories of ancient Greece. In fact, I've only ever seen these two. Of course, in Iphigenia's story, her fate is a punishment for her father's actions. When the Greeks are preparing to sail to Troy in search of Helen, they gather in Aulis, on the coast of Boeotia, where they'll sail out when they're ready. There, Agamemnon goes hunting and shoots down a stag. He feels so impressive that he brags that he's a better hunter even than Artemis. Why? Why does anyone do this? Anyway, obviously, this is a bad plan, and Artemis sets out to punish Agamemnon for this obvious slight. She, oh so famously, withholds the winds that the Greek ships need to sail off to Troy, and they are unable to go anywhere. All of their plans for war grind to an unexpected halt. As you all well remember, they have a prophet there, Calchas, who says that what Artemis wants in return for this is the sacrifice of Agamemnon's eldest daughter, Iphigenia. Now, I've said before that this doesn't sound like Artemis to me, but the more I've looked into her for this episode, the less surprising it seems that she would do this. Still, when Agamemnon does go ahead with his own daughter's sacrifice in order to appease the goddess of the hunt and protectress of young women, 
There are many examples of Artemis saving Iphigenia at the last minute, whisking her away to live amongst people called the Tauri, where, in some cases, she even becomes immortal. So, hey, I guess that's nice of her. This instance of human sacrifice when it comes to the story of Iphigenia is so different from Pausanias' story where the, the people are actually sacrificed and they do truly die, beginning an actual tradition, apparently, of human sacrifice. What to believe? The answer is, of course, sources and time periods and just generally the passage of time and differing customs. But still, it's interesting to look at. I like to think that Artemis was testing Agamemnon, seeing what kind of father he was. Would he really sacrifice his daughter so that he could go to war with Troy over his brother's wife? Or would he choose his family, the relationship with his wife and his other children, over this? We all know what Agamemnon went with. He killed his daughter. Sometimes very easily. Sometimes he struggled. But he did it. And Artemis, perhaps as she'd always planned, saved his daughter anyway. Now, the story back in Petrae is still more interesting because, like I said, it's written down by Pausanias. There is a huge difference in the type of sources that we're talking about here. Iphigenia's story is told in epics. It's not explicitly referenced in Homer, but it is apparently told in the lost epics surrounding the war, particularly the Cypria. It's told in plays, Aeschylus's Agamemnon, and then in detail in Euripides' two plays, Iphigenia at Aulis and Iphigenia among the Taurians. This suggests that these men were working off of an earlier tradition of this story that we don't have, so it sounds like it's very, very ancient. Meanwhile, Pausanias is a late writer, a travel writer from the 2nd century AD, when Greece was part of the Roman Empire. He wrote a lot of things that he learned while traveling, both believable and not. He's actually one of the only sources we have for even the notion of the nymph, Mimphi, who's found so much fame in modern pop culture representations of Persephone and Hades. He had a lot of anecdotes from around the Greek world that related to their mythological past. That's all to say it's interesting that he notes this story of human sacrifice, but we shouldn't immediately believe that this meant that the Greeks practiced human sacrifice or that it was commonplace even in their myths. It is not likely, and not only because there are so few references to it anywhere. Still, there is apparently some evidence that this might have been a practice, maybe just briefly, in Arcadia. Which, if I've got my memory of Assassin's Creed Odyssey's map correctly, it's just south of Achaea, where Petrae is. Could I check a real map of ancient Greece? Yes. Will I for this? Because does it matter? No. <laughs> Referencing my obsessive knowledge of AC Odyssey is more than enough. Back when I was researching Iphigenia at Aulis, someone pointed me in the direction of this article about this possible tradition of human sacrifice on Mount Lycaon in Arcadia, where remains have been found. It's not certain, it's not just a theory, but it is interesting when we look at these instances within myths of Artemis. Still, don't get it twisted. 
I am not suggesting that the Greeks ever practiced human sacrifice for any reason, because it's unlikely. And even if it happened once or twice on that one mountain in Arcadia, that does not make it a widespread practice. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. As always, I really enjoyed diving deeper into Artemis and these notions of human sacrifice, something I definitely did not set out to do when I thought I'm going to cover Artemis because I'm on a time crunch. Uh, And of course, that's just the nature of it, right? Always discovering something new. Artemis is just so fascinating because she acts as this goddess of childbirth in some ways. She is this protectress of girls. She is this strong, unmarried woman who, for most cases in the mythology, totally spurns men. She just doesn't want them around her at all. And yet she is contrarily this goddess who is totally willing to punish on behalf of Apollo when he does horrific things to women and is just like, hey, sister, go ahead and ruin their lives or kill them, destroy them, kill all of their children. Granted, the killing of the children was because somebody insulted their mother. But still, it's so interesting. And of course, it's just the nature of Greek mythology that we have these completely contradictory characters that you think might stand for something, might stand up for a particular group of people. And yet when it comes down to it, They don't because this is the mythology and some stories need to include certain details. They need to have Artemis punishing people for good reasons or not so good reasons because it it didn't exist in a vacuum and it wasn't created for a specific purpose or rather each individual piece might have been created for a specific purpose, but that purpose changed over the authorship, the storyteller, the time period. You know, we have Pausanias, who's this travelogue from so late, and he's just hearing things and writing them down. And and it's just so fascinating. This this part is is not scripted because I just am feeling the need to ramble on about Artemis. And she, I just find her so interesting and I'm so thrilled to be able to cover her this way. Uh, again, this was on a total whim because I was supposed to be covering Heracles and hopefully I will soon, but I need this book. It, it should have so much in it. Um, so stay tuned. Hopefully next week is Heracles. If not, it'll be something else great, I promise. But I'm really excited to be diving in to Heracles. These stories that I have not told before because while I've covered him a few times now, there are so many stories of Heracles because of how important he was. And anyway, now I'm not even talking about Artemis anymore. I'm talking about Heracles, but truly it's all just so much fun. I mean, God, I just could learn about these people forever and always. And I'm so thrilled to be covering these gods where there aren't a lot of really long-winded stories. And so we don't have these traditional storytelling aspects for people like Artemis beyond the few that I've told already. But at the same time, she features in so many shorter pieces. And I didn't even fully touch upon, you know, even remotely what is included for her on Theoi.com. So we'll have to dive back into Artemis sometime. But for now, gods, this goddess of the hunt, this absolute badass, what an incredible woman. You can really take from her whatever you want. Sometimes she's righteous and really protecting herself and her beloved nymphs. And sometimes 
she's awful and she's just totally beholden to her shit brother. And it just shows the complexity around Greek myth, how these stories were developed, when and where and why, and just the ways in which that means they are often completely different and completely it just entirely based upon what was needed for any given moment, any anecdote. Artemis is so fascinating. I absolutely love her. What a thrill. As always, truly, thank you so much. I couldn't do this without you. You are all the best. Please, if you're feeling it, go ahead and give me a five-star review because what fun we have every week, twice a week, really. We have so much fun. Okay, thank you. I am Liv and I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) 
What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.